paresthesia. Uh, many think, myself included at, at one point, that it's because you, you cut off circulation or you cut off blood supply, but, but it's actually a temporary compression of the nerves uh, in the same way that you would crimp a water hose. If, if your, your mother or your, your sister has ever been watering the flowers and a little brother comes along and he crimps the, crimps the hose, it's the, it's the exact same idea. The, the nerve gets pinched and it doesn't communicate signals to the spine and the brain correctly. And the signals in your nerves can't, can't move in your legs if they're crossed too long. So, so the message is, doesn't, doesn't arrive. And, and then the, the end result is, is it's, your foot's like a limp dish rag. And the tingling, the pins and, and needles you feel after moving around, what we call it waking up, is actually the nerves regaining function. Of course, the best way to, to avoid that altogether is not to crimp it to begin with. Did you know that as a Christian, you can get spiritual paresthesia? If a believer remains in an inactive position too long, they can temporarily compress their, their spiritual nerves. And, and when that happens, they, they struggle to communicate with, with God correctly. And, and the result is spiritual numbness or, or immobility. And you end up on the, on the sidelines like a, like a limp dish rag, not not much good for Christ, and obviously not much good for, for yourself. Well, the Apostle Paul is going to teach us how to avoid that today in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. And thankfully, just like you can uncrimp a physical nerve, you can also reactivate your spiritual nerves, and you can start moving freely again. And the motivation for doing that is found in, in our verses. We just moved into the sixth section of Philippians, and that begins in chapter 3, verse 1. It goes through the entire chapter, chapter 3, all the way uh, from beginning to end. And, and Paul just got done um, uh, giving us some serious warnings about genuine Christianity, and, and he's continuing those warnings th- this morning, and he's using his own life as, the, as an example. He, he just got done giving us his salvation testimony as an example for, for what, a, what a true Christian trusts in and what they, what they don't. In verse 4 through 6, Paul tells us what he lost, what he left behind whenever he, whenever he came to Christ. In verses 8 through 11, he tells us what he gained. And that gain is what we saw last time. He, he says he counts the past as loss. He, he considers all things. He currently continues to consider all things not only as loss but as liability compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And every believer, you included, you have that, that same surpassing spiritual wealth that, that, Paul, that Paul marveled in last week. In Jesus Christ, we have the fortune of knowing Him. We, we possess the treasure of being found in His righteousness and, and not our own. We, we have the wealth of fellowship alongside Him, which includes the power of the Holy Spirit, the, the power that rose... Uh, that raised Jesus from, from the dead, and the fellowship of His suffering. I mean, God meets with us when we associate with Him in, in ways that, that's indescribable. And in the end, where's it all going? We have the prize of the resurrection. I mean, we, we, we get to be called out from among the corpses and rise with the Lord. So after passionately describing His personal testimony... Paul wants no confusion about what all that means in daily life, which is where he's going to take us today. 
Paul's going to say, while all of that's true, my position is secure. I'm not resting on my laurels of justification. I am pursuing sanctification with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a good way to summarize the, the, the passage last week in this one. And as his testimony builds in intensity, uh, you know, he, he, he ends with this, that I may know him, the, the power of his resurrection. I mean, you can just hear the, the aching intensity, the longing that Paul has in his voice. Paul says that passion doesn't perfect him. He's trusting in Christ, but that's not the end. He, he is now pursuing every day like a sprinter. He's in Christ. That, that's the security of his position. But now he's, he's striving to become like Christ. That's a pursuit. And that requires personal effort. While salvation is by God's grace alone, you add absolutely nothing to it. You weren't even looking for the Lord. He found you. Sanctification involves your holy sweat, <laughs> It involves laboring and pursuing to the point of exhaustion. And that's how you avoid spiritual paresthesia. The Bible doesn't describe your decision to follow Christ as the end. It's the beginning. It's the starting point. It's not the goal. And yet, if you sit on that decision to follow Christ too long, your spiritual feet are going to fall asleep. And... Paul says you need to get up and start walking after the Lord. In the Great Commission, Jesus did not say go make decisions. He said go make disciples. Disciples are followers at their core. Of course, there's a moment when you decide to follow Christ. Paul just revealed to us what was going on in his heart whenever he he did that. But that's only the entry point. And what follows is learning and obeying, or just like Jesus said in the Great Commission learning all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And that pursuit involves every nerve of your spiritual being, and we don't want to crimp one of them. G. Walter Hansen said, Authenticity of faith in Christ cannot be measured only by the intensity of one's initial decision to receive Christ. Receiving Christ is a lifetime adventure. And Paul outlines that adventure as a as an active runner's course in verses 12 through 13, complete with a prize at the end. One commentator said Paul must have liked athletics because he talks about it a lot, and here's one of those places. The paragraph starts in verse 12, and it ends in verse 16. In verse 12, he starts with a disclaimer, saying this is not what I meant. I don't mean this by the previous verses. He did not mean that he possessed the fullness of all those things that that he said he longed for experientially right now. Then he details what what he does mean. But I press on to make it my own. Now, now he has a goal in his life that he's going after. In verses 13 and 14, is, is how he's making that, that a reality and how you should, you should too. This one thing I do, Paul says. How do you do that, Paul? Not looking back and looking forward to the prize. And then in verses 15 and 16 is his encouragement to, to keep pursuing that same thing with him. He talks about mature believers. And spiritual maturity is characterized by this Christ-centered ambition that picks the foot up and puts it down and does that again and again and again and again and again until we reach Jesus face to face. And you have received breathtaking benefits in Christ so that you might pursue the one 
who gave them to you. So how are your spiritual legs? You've been sitting on that decision for a while, not a lot of activity, or are your legs asleep? Do you feel the tingling? Well, Paul's going to help us with pursuing Christ. He gives us three specific steps here. Three specific steps in verses 12 through 16 in the pursuit of Christ-likeness. He says the first step involves marking the course, verse 12. The second step involves the, or invokes, I should say, the motivation in running, verses 13 and 14. And then the third step instructs mature believers in verses 15 and 16. Let's look at the first one. You'll get these one at a, at a time. If you would, at verse 12, Paul says the first step in the pursuit of Christ-likeness involves marking the course. And, and he says there's, there, his perfection is, is disclaimed and the, and the target in running is described. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Paul starts in verse 12 with an emphatic disclaimer. Literally not that or, or, or now already by this point I, I have obtained it. What had Paul not attained? There's no object in the, in the Greek. You, you'll probably notice there the it is in italics in your, in your Bible. What's Paul talking about? What's the object that, that he hasn't attained? Is he talking about the resurrection of the dead from verse 11? Um, is he talking about uh, the righteousness which comes from God in verse 9? Surely that's not it. Righteousness comes from Christ alone. Well, he tells us in the second part of the verse, not that I'd already attained it or have already become perfect. He elaborates on, on what he means, spiritual perfection. He hasn't attained spiritual perfection or, or completion. I mean, th- this entire section is, is, a, is an outline, a, a skeletal system of, of what it looks like uh, to, to come to Christ. There's this, what, what Paul trusted in prior in verses 4 through 6, his current position, he's in Christ in verses 7 through 11, and now his future pursuit in verses 12 through 16. It's the full and final receipt of everything that, he, that he's just mentioned, which you could summarize by being conformed to the image of Christ. Paul hasn't reached completed Christ-likeness yet, and that's what he's striving after. And Paul didn't want any misunderstanding with what he just got done saying. He, was, he wasn't trusting in his inheritance or his personal achievements. He, he was fully trusting in Christ alone, but that did not mean that he had arrived. All of those benefits didn't mean that the work was, was done. Christ's work done, but Paul's work and your work is not. And after we come to Christ, we... We pursue more of Him, don't we? That's what Paul says he's doing. John MacArthur said, Your position is fixed in Christ, but your condition can be improved and should be improved. You're not what you can be. You're not what you should be. You're not what you will be, according to God's promises. And this passage right here deals a death blow to the doctrine of perfectionism because it clearly says... Whatever that doctrine is, Paul hasn't attained it. There are many denominations like the, like the Methodists or the Wesleyans, Quakers, the holiness movements that, that teach that in the, the Christian life you can actually reach a, a place of entire sanctification or spiritual perfection in, in, in this life. 
you can reach a place that, that you can be entirely sanctified. Not justified, sanctified. The teaching goes all the way back to the, to the heretic Pelagius. And they, they teach that it comes from a second work of grace, some higher life event, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the result is, though, that, that a believer can reach the place where they don't willfully sin anymore. And some Baptists dabble in that idea where, where, where you'll hear people, well, you, you, you get saved at salvation and then you get serious when you become a disciple. You were a disciple from day one. You might not be a good disciple, but you were a disciple from, from day one. And, and that's the beginning and you pursue Wesley taught that there were three stages in the Christian life. Uh, he, he took it from 1 John uh, chapter 2. Little children, young men, and fathers. You probably remember that verse. He said little children were, were babes in Christ. Young men were those who had victory over temptation and evil thoughts. But, but fathers, according to Wesley, were mature Christians who were filled with the love of God, making it possible for what he called entire sanctification in They were free from willful sin. Now, I'm not sure what spiritual mirror somebody who believes that's looking in, but but frankly, uh, it must have a pretty bad reflection. This coming week is my 25th salvation anniversary, and I've looked in the mirror every day, and and that might be a good theology, but, but I have no idea how somebody could believe that in practice. Um, you live only a little and you figure out that that falls completely apart. And the Apostle Paul could, couldn't understand that doctrine either because he wasn't perfect. I mean, and if anyone would have reached the, the place of entire sanctification, it would have been the Apostle Paul, right? Here Paul is, 25 to 30 years after he came to Christ, and he says, I've not reached that place yet. The very guy that supposedly teaches this doctrine, hasn't reached it. Now, now think about this, because this is massively encouraging for you and me. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he's a new creature. Paul says that new creature has a, a new heart, according to Ezekiel 36. He says he has a new disposition that, that desires holiness in Romans 7.22. He says he's united with Christ in Galatians 2.20. He says he possessed a renewed mind in Ephesians 4.23. He had the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2. He had the right standing before God in, in Romans, Romans 8.1. He'd been justified in Romans 5. He said, I've been forgiven in Ephesians 1. He, he had Christ's righteousness imputed to him in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul said he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God in Romans 8 and 9, and yet he is still a sinner who had flesh, who needed to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that encouraging? It is to me. He was not perfected, and neither are you. Paul had not arrived, and if Paul hadn't arrived, I can promise you, you haven't arrived, and neither neither am I. Which is why he makes this statement twice, once in verse 12 and once in verse 13. Perfection or thinking that that we've arrived or could arrive, is a dangerous doctrine because it leads to two very perilous things. Spiritual laziness or aimless effort. You believe that and you're going to get lazy at some point. You're going to think that that you've reached some level and and in that case your foot's going to fall asleep. Or you're going to keep trying to chase after that in aimless effort where you're stomping around trying to wake it up. 
One is stagnation, and the other produces a lot of activity but not much fruit other than feeling sorry for yourself because you're going to try and try and feel like a failure, and when you don't attain, you're going to beat yourself up when you're trying to attain what God never said you could in the first place. And Paul says, stop resting on on your laurels like you've arrived. You're not perfected yet. And stop the self-pity thinking that you should be. You're not. You won't be. Your flesh never improves. You might figure out through spiritual maturity how to apply the Word of God and yield to the Holy Spirit, but the same flesh that I have today, 25 years after I came to Christ, is the same flesh I will die with. Glorification alone will take away the remnant of your your sin nature. And you have Christ's righteousness on your account. That's settled. And because you do... You now pursue that righteousness in practice. That's the, that's the sanctifying pursuit that you're to engage in. And frankly, this is where we often fail. Right, let me say it this way. This is why Paul's bringing this up. You would never deny the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Righteousness from Christ imputed to us through Christ. By faith, you, wouldn't, you would not deny that. But you could get to the point where you think that you've grown enough. You know you're not perfect, but you're as perfect as you care to be. (laughs) And you could become a pragmatic perfectionist. And that brings spiritual paresthesia. So what do you do about that? Well, well, Paul tells us next. Look at verse 12 again. He he starts with this this disclaimer, and then he, he lays out the course here. Not that I've already obtained or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ. He said you should press forward toward the goal that was secured by Christ for you. I mean, he disclaims the state of perfection and he describes the target we should be aiming at. It's a target that Jesus has already, has already attained. The whole passage centers around verse 14, the verb there. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's the the gravity. All the other verses are are orbiting around that. And in this verse, he he marks out that race course. You're going to strive for the prize and you're going to run this course. What's the course? Paul lays it out here. And notice this verse sounds kind of awkward. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ. What does that mean? Sounds kind of awkward. It's actually one of the most powerful passages in the book of Philippians. Paul says he was pressing to lay hold of something because he was laid hold of by Christ himself. Catalambano. To lay hold of something and to make it your own. He uses it to describe the the target of his pursuit and the reason for pursuing it. He is striving to lay hold of Christ and make him his own because Christ had laid hold of him and and made Paul his own. He was saved unto that end and now he pursues that end. That end is secure. No question. And now Paul's running toward that end. It's a powerful passage about how God's secure work actually fuels your responsibility. It's not up to you. It's up to the Lord. But but what you're doing, knowing that actually motivates you 
to go hard after God. Jesus Christ already secured Paul's target, which is to be like him in heaven. And Paul is reaching for that prize. And ever since Paul grasped and apprehended, was apprehended by Christ on the road to Damascus, his desire was to grasp and comprehend Jesus. I don't know, I mean, there are ebbs and flows in my life just like in yours. But I don't know if I've ever gotten tired of being saved. You know what I mean? I mean, when I, even if my mind drifts, when I ponder what God has done and what God has done for me, I know me. I know I'm not perfect. Wouldn't even begin. I mean, poor contempt on all my pride as that the, the author of that doctrine proclaimed in song. But I, want, I do want to know him. Paul says he's been placed in an intimate relationship by Christ, and because of that relationship, he wants to turn that into moral transformation. That security is what drives me to to, to kill sin and to go after that because of what he's done. It's not to get to him. I've already got to him. He got to me. But because he got to me and I'm his, I want to be pleasing to him. Isn't that what God says His, his goal was, this, this transformation into the image of Christ? All believers in, in verse 8. You know the verse, Romans 8, 28, that everyone, everyone quotes, even unbelievers. They wreck their car and they're drunk. They say, well, God's going to work it together for good somehow. You heard that? Everyone loves to quote this verse about whatever happens in life, but you should not miss the two qualifiers that are in this verse. God only does this for believers. Do you know that? Look at the verse. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to to His purpose. God only does this for believers. He does this for those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. What's, What's that purpose, Lord? What's the purpose that you've called us? Why did you save us? Well, He goes on to tell us. For those whom He foreknew... He also predestined, watch this, to be conformed to the image of His Son. That, that's the goal. That's, that's the target. That's what will happen. And the result, so that we'll be the, the firstborn among many brethren. And then verse 30 describes the whole plan of, of how God promises to accomplish that. In these whom He predestined to be made like His Son, He just told us that. He also called, that's unto salvation. These whom He called, He also justified. When did He do that? He did that at salvation. And these whom he justified, he also glorified, meaning he'll raise from the dead and make perfect. This is exactly what Paul's talking about here in Philippians. God says he's planned and he's purposed and he's promised that all believers will be made into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's secure because God has laid hold of you. And so Paul says, that's exactly what I'm pursuing. There are two parts to spiritual transformation. There's God's work in providence, uh, all things working together. He overworks all the circumstances, even the sin in your life, in order to conform you, to make you more like Christ. And and then the other part is our work in pursuing maturity in in Jesus, yielding and obeying and reading and striving and, 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 and laboring. And Paul says that's the work that he's pursuing. Listen, there is no neutral in the Christian life. You must go forward, Paul says, to live up 
to what Christ secured for you. And you've not arrived at that goal. So if you're on the sidelines or you've dropped out of the race because of a sin or you're not running hard, Paul says you need to put the donut down and get back in there because Christ has already promised the victory. I mean, it's secure. You'll be there. And that's amazing motivation. There is even more motivation to do that. Let's look at the second step he gives us. And the pursuit of Christ's likeness involves the, the motivation in running. If you go to verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what, what lies ahead. So after mapping out the race course and pointing out a secure finish line, Paul now gives us the instructions on how to run. He he says run with a forward-looking focus in verse 13. And he says run with a finish line motivation in verse 14. In the Christian life, there must be a straining focus as you run. And you must sprint towards the goal. Notice Paul repeats the disclaimer here. This is how important. It is that you don't fall to the doctrine of perfectionism, whether it's the Judaizers or, or, or anybody else. Paul repeats his disclaimer. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. And he starts with an endearing term here. Notice he's, he's talking in general, probably to the Judaizers that, that are listening, and now he focuses on the, the brethren, the, the believers that are in, that's in Philippi. Endearing term. And he, and he lays out a clear argument against those who are, who, are, who are teaching the opposite. It's like saying, my brothers, I don't care if they're saying they've obtained perfection or not. I don't care if they're saying that you can do that through circumcision or whatever else. I haven't. But here's what I am doing. And here's what you need to be doing as well. Your translations may have the words, I do, in, in, in italics, and lies in italics. But one thing, that's because in, in the original, that's all it says. And it's for emphasis. Brethren, I do not regard myself to have laid hold yet, but one thing, forgetting what is behind and reaching toward what is ahead. Paul says, there's one thing in my sights. And he says, that's how you must run. With a forward-looking focus. Not a rear-view mirror focus, a forward-looking focus. Progress in your spiritual life will come whenever you have that focus. He says it's not enough to have passion like Paul when he says that I may know him. Oh, that's important. I am so thankful that you feel the passion of the Lord whenever you think about Him, weeping song or whatever it might be. But that's not enough. Paul also says it's not enough to have activity, like, like he's talking about this pursuit. It's not, a, it's not enough just to run and just to run around. Advancement comes when you run with a, with a single focus. You, you, you're, you're, you're single-minded in life, and that's how you accomplish spiritual growth. MacArthur said, The world is full of people who are clever at much and successful at nothing because they, can never, they never focus on anything in, in life. And, and now, they can, now they can make money out of it being an Insta, uh, Instagram influencer, right? There's a guy, he said, they're like the guy who jumped on his horse. People who are, who are clever at much, successful at nothing. 
They're like the guy who jumped on his horse and rode off madly in all directions. <laughs> a lot of energy and a lot of fury and a lot of action, but no progress. They're not focused. And that's why the psalmist prayed, Lord, unite my heart, give me one thing. That's why James warned about a double-minded man who's unstable in all of his ways. He's blown all over the place. Here was Paul, a man with focused concentration. It's not just spiritual activity. It's focused effort. Does that describe you? You zeroed in on one thing or scattered to the four winds in your life. If it's the latter, don't be surprised if you don't grow a whole lot. You go in this direction and, and, and stop, and then you back up and you go in this direction and stop, and then you back up and you go in this direction and stop. Paul says just one thing. So what does it look like to pursue one thing? What does he mean by that? Does he mean that you get up every day chanting uh, the Psalms, dressing strangely, and reciting Bible verses? No, that's exactly what he did as a Pharisee. And he says that got him nowhere, except farther from Christ. What's the one thing? Well, Paul gives another parallel passage over in 2 Corinthians 5. Listen to how similar this is to Philippians. Therefore, always being of good courage and knowing that while we are home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Doesn't that sound what Paul was saying earlier? To live as Christ and to die as gain? That's what we long for, but, but how do I live? Well, here it comes. It's underlined up there. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, our single focus, whether we're home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. That was Paul's singular focus. His goal was to live every day of his life pleasing to the one that saved him. Is that your goal? He goes on to tell us why. He says the resurrection is coming, for, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each will receive deeds in his body, that he's done in his body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. He says the re- a reward coming, just exactly like you're running for the prize here. It's parallel. And Paul says that you should live with one goal, and everything that you do somehow connects to God. It, it's done for Him. It's, it's to be made more like Him. It's to please Him. The overarching purpose in life is, is pleasing God. So how do you do that? Well, he goes on. Look at verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as to lay hold of, of it yet, but one thing, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies uh, Ahead, I couldn't wait to get to that part of this passage whenever I was studying it, especially as a man like me who didn't come to Christ till I was 24. I have plenty of things that are behind that I want to forget that come up in my conscience and in my memory, sometimes on a regular basis. Paul says in this verse, the one thing that he pursues, he, he says it's like, it's like two hands. You run with an open hand back here. The things that are behind are in this open hand, and, and, and you don't grasp a hold of them. And yet with this hand, it's, it's reaching forward. It's, it's trying to grasp what is, what's out there. There's a negative to avoid and a positive to attain. It, it's what not to focus on and what to reach for. And Paul says if you want to pursue Christ, 
Don't look in the rearview mirror too much. Forget what is behind. I want to tell you this is one of the most encouraging and challenging verses in, in the Bible. It's encouraging because Paul is not just talking about the Judaism, the things that he lost in, in verses 6-10, through 10, because this is a present participle. He says, I, I go on forgetting. I keep on, as I run, I forget the step that I took just a second ago. I forget yesterday, last year, the, the, the year before that. Now, there are plenty of places in the Bible that, that talks about how you learn from those things. But as far as it being a hindrance for you running today for Jesus Christ, those things are gone. Rip the rearview mirror off. They're not there any longer. He's talking about everything behind on the race course. Your sins, your stumbles... And your successes, and how well you did yesterday, and how great you applied the sermon last week, there's a danger on that side as well. None of them are relevant for running right now. That's what Paul says. They're over, they're done with, you can't do anything about them. This is not a passage that says uh, the, the sin you've committed doesn't matter to God. It's a passage that says once God has forgiven it because He is, is so concerned about your sin that He comes to die for it, once it's forgiven, you must not let that sin keep you from running for God today. Leave it buried. I've heard Mark Hager in biblical counseling describe the, the things that someone sins that someone has committed against you and that you have forgiven, they're, they're, in, the, they're in the graveyard. They're buried. Um, your sins are buried in, in Christ. And just like you wouldn't go to a, to a graveyard and start digging something up, you leave it there. You may place some flowers on it and you may memorialize it. You may remember what God has brought you from, but you don't go dig up the dead body. You don't go digging up your sins. You leave it there. It, it's, it's under the blood. So Paul says, leave it buried. Don't run looking over your shoulder. Don't let the past anything hinder you. Run with one thing in view. And if you stubble and fall down, don't lay there in the ditch. Get up and run again. Isn't that encouraging? Notice it's also challenging, though. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching toward what what lies ahead. I press toward the the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here Paul borrows that imagery from an athletic event that ends with a prize. Not a laurel wreath or a celery wreath, but the crown of righteousness, which is laid up for us. Strong word, double preposition, ep and ek, out after, the word means to stretch, I stretch toward the goal, it means to stretch a muscle to its limits and then, and then go even further. And if you want the prize, you must forget the ground that you've covered regardless of what it brought and you look ahead with a single focus and you must strain hard for the, for the finish line, which is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Picture a marathon runner just before they, they get to the finish line, how they, they strain their, their neck or their body to, to press their chest across the, the finish line. That's the picture here. The runner's already using every fiber of their body to make it to the finish line, and then they find a little bit more to stretch to win. That's the idea here. 
Why does he find that extra effort at the very end? The same reason he, he runs to begin with. He wants to win. Why do we live the Christian life? Why do we find the extra effort to, to strive forward whenever, whenever it gets hard? Because we have a prize in our sights as well, and it's to be with Christ. And, and when you are, you're going to be like Him. Listen, if you have no desire to be with Christ, then, then you'll have no desire to, to live for Him here. I mean, I don't mean you're in a hurry to die and you don't enjoy any of, any of God's blessings, but, but all of that's just a reflection of the real thing. They're just a shadow of the one who's casting the shadow. The gifts reveal to us the wonder of the giver. Enjoy them. But as you enjoy them, I mean, spiritual enjoyment of good things is, is being thankful for the one who, who provides it. The best this life has to offer is a taster spoon of something and someone a trillion times better waiting in heaven. And if you're not longing for Him, then you're not going to do anything that Paul's saying here. If your affections are not set there, if they're set on the shadows of of the earth or worse, which are passing away, then you're not going to run for the prize. I'm running for a prize. Are you? I hope to be here. I hope to be here 25 more years. 50 more years. I don't care. However long I get, whatever I do, I want want to live for Christ. I do. If He calls me home after this sermon, praise Jesus. But if not, I'm running. Are you running? Are you looking back too much? Is it hindering you? Paul says, look up, look ahead, and let your vision be clear. That's what mature Christians do. That's how mature Christians run. Look at this third one here. There's an admonition of God's assistance and an encouragement in Christian consistency. He's instructing mature runners here. And here's his instruction. He admonishes them that God will assist them if they get off track. And he encourages them in Christian consistency. Look at you at verse 15. He says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, same word, have this attitude, and if, any, uh, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. Now, wait a minute. Paul just said, I wasn't perfect, twice. And now he says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. Did he forget what he just wrote? No. He's using the same word but he's using it in a different way. Paul has a final word of encouragement for those who are running like this. He gives his own personal example, and then he applies it to them. Uh, Watch how plural this is. Let us, therefore. Paul's talking about himself. I run. I'm pressing for, for this goal. Now he says, let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, as many as are spiritually mature, have this attitude. What attitude? The attitude they just gave about how you run. You're not complete. You haven't arrived. So you press toward the goal. What's the goal? The goal that Christ has already secured for you. And because of that, you, you're motivated in order to, to, for your life to be transformed in that way. How do you run? You forget everything behind. Successes and failures. And you keep a single focus on, on Jesus Christ. 
And that's the attitude with which you run and you, and you strain and you strive in, in, that, in that direction. And now he says, and I know there are many of you that are just like me. And I know that there are many of you that have been saved longer than 25 years in this church. And you're doing exactly what I'm doing, exactly what Paul's doing right here. Those who are pursuing Christ with all their might, not looking back and striving for the prize ahead. Paul says those are spiritually mature people. That is what spiritual maturity looks like. Not chanting or any other things that you would, that you would put there. Spiritual maturity looks like you are in pursuit of Christ and you do that day in and day out and you have the attitude. He says keep this attitude in mind. That's what a mature runner does. They stay on course. And if you've ever tried to run, when you start to train, you, you probably had a hard time. But once you start and the goal's set, then, then you keep going. Paul says keep going, stay on course. But look at what he says here. There's an admonishment if, and it, there's an encouragement in here. Look what happens if you get off course. Is it possible to get off course? Yeah, I've got off course before. Paul says, therefore, let us therefore, in verse 15, as many as are complete or spiritually mature, have this attitude, and if, any, if in anything you have a different attitude, you lose the zeal or the intensity of running, God will reveal that also to you. Praise Jesus. The word is, He will unveil it. Apocalypto, uh, to unveil. The, the, the word from Revelation. Paul says those who aren't running hard after Christ or, or those who have tripped up or whatever it is and, and, and they're on the sidelines, uh, they're not without hope. He says God will open their minds and uh, unveil that reality. At some point, God will prod you to get back in the race. But He usually does that through trials and difficulty, doesn't He? Sore muscles from running? Yeah, I have sore muscles. Those sore muscles are, it's a good kind of pain. I've also had the kind of soreness where I have tripped over my own feet and I've fallen and gotten bruised and and battered. But Paul says even there, even there, don't be discouraged. It's God's grace uh, waking you to return to Him. And if your foot didn't fall asleep, you, you wouldn't know you needed to move. And aren't you thankful for even that? I am. Some of the most... Difficult circumstances are when you can see the clearest. And difficulty brings you back to spiritual reality. So so if you don't understand, if you're not running with this attitude, God will show you. Paul says, I know it. But until then, just keep doing what you do. You say, well, I don't want to get there. I don't want to fall. I, I I don't want to do the wrong thing. Well, what do I do? You do exactly what he says in verse 16. You, you put one foot in front of the other and, and you just do that over and over and over and over. There's no magic bullet. There's no spiritual plane of enlightenment where you'll never do that again. The same flesh that's in you is the same flesh you'll have and you'll battle that until, until the day. So, so how do you battle that? Verse 16. Paul says, However, let us keep living by the same standard, that same standard to which we have attained. He ends by giving an encouragement to those who are running, and the encouragement is about Christian consistency. Successful growth 
comes, successful running comes in tortoise-like faithfulness, not hare-like fits and sprints. You know the story of the tortoise and the hare? My mama told me that story whenever I was little. Paul says, how do you insulate yourself from that? He says, don't worry about that. Don't, don't live your Christian life worrying about falling. Forget what is behind. Worry about pursuing Christ. And, and, and how do you do that? You pick one foot up and you, and you put it down. And then you pick it up and you put it down. And, and you look down and then you look ahead, but you don't look back. And you do that over and over and over and over. And if you skin your knee, you get up and you put one foot down and over again. Because Jesus Christ is your security. It's not how fast you run or, or otherwise. You're going to make it to the end. Philippians, he who began a good work in you will perfect it, will perform it, he'll complete it. But because he's promised to do that, doesn't that make you want to run? Doesn't it make you want to throw off everything in your life that would hinder you because you love him and you want to glorify him? You see how what Christ has done and what, how that works in your life and pursuit. You do that over and over and over, and the next thing that you're going to realize is the scenery is different. You ever been on a long journey and it's on an interstate? And it just seems like you're looking at the same thing over and over and then all of a sudden the scenery changes. Paul says it's like that in your spirit Christian life. You'll grow. But if you stop running, you'll get nowhere. If you let whatever you've done take you out of the race, it's not going to get any better. Sometimes sitting on the sidelines is, the great, is a greater sin than the fall itself. If you fail, I'm sorry. But look to Jesus Christ, your advocate with the Father. Confess your sin and then get up and move for Jesus. Because you're still alive. And because you're still alive, you still have the opportunity to bring glory to God. And little is much whenever God is in it. You say, I have, I'm 45, I'm 85, I'm whatever five. I have such a little bit of life left to God. Did you know whatever bit of life that you offer to God, God can take that just like the loaves and fishes and multiply that into spiritual, spiritual gain? Here's that kind of power. I know, like me, you wish like me, that I would have never committed anything, that I wish I would have come to Jesus the minute that I could have ever believed, as soon as I understood it, but I didn't. So I forget those things which are behind, and I run hard after Christ, and that's what Paul says that you should do as well. Three specific steps in the pursuit of Christ-likeness. He marks out the course. He has the right motivation in running, not looking back, straining ahead. And he gives some instructions to mature runners. God is in the race with you. Keep the attitude. He'll provoke you from the sidelines. And just keep going step by step by step. And you'll cross the finish line before you know it. Let you bow your heads. So how are you doing? You know, whenever I was preparing this message and was praying. I was looking at this passage, and, and I, I knew this passage, especially the one, uh, forget what lies behind and reaches forward what lies ahead, and I, and I thought, does that really mean what I've always thought it meant? 
like including my sins. I need to make sure that I can tell the people what it means. Yeah, it's exactly what it means. And if you're here this morning, I prayed for you. I said, Lord, I know that there are probably people who are coming that are weighed down by things that they have done. And they wish they hadn't have done it, but they did. And it's hindering them. And there may still be lasting consequences, and you may not be able to do some of the things that, that you, were, you were doing before, but it will not hinder you from running for Jesus Christ. If you forget and you look ahead, leave it under the blood. And then I also prayed, Lord, I'm sure there are people who've come that are resting on their spiritual laurels. And they just need to be encouraged to get back in the race and to put one foot in front of the other. Take your eyes off your feet and put it on the prize and pick up the pace. How are you doing? Father, I thank you for this message, truth from your word, not from me. And I also pray not only for for believers in either one of those categories, but, but I pray for, for people that have never come to Christ, maybe watching right now, maybe listening in this room. They're not even in the race. They've never bowed the knee to Jesus to begin with. I pray today they would give up running in circles, like on a hamster wheel, trying to do things on their own, and they would surrender to Jesus Christ, and that you would put them on the course You would lay hold of them, Lord, through faith. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.